Good morning again. The scripture reading today is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the whole thing. So you can turn to page 5 in your bulletin if you want to follow along. Okay. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, well, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants, through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours. And you are of Christ and Christ is of God. Amen. Well, it's my delight this morning to introduce our guest preacher today, Pastor David McNeely. And David is the husband of Judith and the father of uh, six adopted boys, uh, four of whom are originally from Ethiopia. Uh, He is the senior pastor of Wildwood Church in Tallahassee, Florida, land of the FSU Seminoles. Any Seminoles here? There you go. There we go. I was looking for you. Now, earlier in David's ministry, he served in the Atlanta area as a youth and student pastor, uh, which was how he got to know a young man named Steve Davis during his uh, teen years, a challenging time in Steve's life. 
This was back when Steve had long Kurt Cobain-styled hair. I have seen pictures. Um, in fact, we asked David to bring some pictures and... No, just kidding. We, we should have, but we didn't. Uh, we laugh, but you know, it, it's a special thing. David's long relationship with Steve reminds us uh, that God is always at work for a long time on us and in us. And you, you never know what he might be up to. Might even call you to be a leader one day. It's a story of grace, a story that we know is true in Walter's life as well. And so on this special occasion, uh, it's a pleasure to have our brother David here. Thank you, David, uh, for making the trip and being here. Let's together welcome Pastor David McNeely together. Hey, all right, a couple of things first. Uh, you'll figure it out real quick. Um, I'm from the South. Uh, I was born in uh, Mississippi, raised in Alabama, and spent most of my adult life in Georgia. And so I've kept moving eastward, trying to get a little further up to where people are actually educated. And uh, so I can say this with all confidence. I can say this with all confidence that I will be the dumbest preacher that will ever preach in uh, this pulpit right here. It's not self-deprecating. It's really not. It's just, it's just the truth. Okay. Steve, uh, Steve and I actually go back even further. Uh, our, uh, his mother and my mother uh, were the dearest of friends and prayed together on uh, many occasions. So uh, Marty prayed for me before I was even born. And so our families have been connected for a long, long time. Uh, I can still remember the day um, that my parents got the news of Steve's father's passing and uh, both of them just uh, head buried into hands and uh, on the one hand, thanking God for uh, taking home a, a saint of his, and on the other hand, um, weeping over the loss, a human loss. So both things were true. God, thanks, and oh, God, help. And both of those things being simultaneously true at that moment. So our, our families go way back. Uh, one of my children is actually named Davis. So uh, all of our children have the names, last names of family and friends that have been particularly influential in our lives. And uh, we dealt for a long time with uh, infertility, uh, medical mystery. For whatever reason, we uh, uh, cannot bear children uh, through the, the uh, we can't bear children. So it took about a five-minute discussion about adoption, and we said, let's go that route. And then after many failures and, and uh, 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 placements that didn't uh, follow through and weren't able to get there, um, we, we finally adopted these twin little boys in Augusta, Georgia. And I called Steve on the phone and said, man, can you come down here and hang out with us? And uh, he documented it. And uh, so we have that um, the very first time. It's just um, it's a special thing for me to be here. I was privileged to do their wedding and to be a part of their lives. Um, that was actually the very first wedding that I had to do. And I'm not a nervous guy. Like I, I struggle with overconfidence uh, too many times. And, uh, and, and you can see the video on there. My hands are visibly shaking. Uh, and, uh, everybody knows what's supposed to happen in a wedding. And so you don't, you don't want to mess that one up. And so I did that. So uh, I mean it when I tell you it's a privilege to be here. I have kept up with your church for uh, quite a number of years and have prayed for you with great regularity. I'm a big fan of Duke. Uh, the fact that you have Erwin uh, uh, Entz uh, um, uh, was here evidently just a couple of weeks ago, and you regularly get to listen to Duke. Um, and then I got a chance to listen to this music this morning. Good grief. We have a phrase 
down where I came from. And it's just true. Anybody that's good at their craft, whatever it may be, you know, you're a great teacher or a great parent or a great whatever it may be. And we say, man, that person's a stud. <laughs> and ma'am, I don't know your name. <laughs> But you are a stud. That's uh, see, we don't we don't really do this kind of music in Tallahassee. It's uh, and this is a joy. You guys actually celebrate God. We do the golf clap. <laughs> we're, we're we're Presbyterian. You're only Presbyterian name. It sounds like this is great. This is good stuff. So, all right. Uh, lest I turn this thing into just a comedy hour, let's actually get to the text and. Uh, and I get here. Just a couple things I want to draw out in here. Uh, in verses 1 through 4, we just see the practice of discipline. I call it the practice for a reason. There's a practice of division. We all will naturally divide. And that is true in every phase of life. We all will divide across all kinds of lines. We will divide racially. We will divide economically. We will divide with our sports teams. Florida State, they hear you back there, brother. We will divide, whatever it is. I grew up in Alabama. It's Alabama or Auburn. There's nothing else in the state to do. And so we just sit around football. We will divide naturally. It's a practice. It's a habit. Until something else happens in our lives. And then when something else happens in our lives, we see the beauty, rather, of unity. Not of uniformity, but of unity. And so Paul is writing here to this church. Now, I won't go and give all the background again. Duke's already done that. But just remember who he's writing to. He's writing this Corinthian church that is jacked up beyond comprehension. When you have to actually tell your congregation, by the way, temple prostitutes are not a good idea. That's probably not a healthy church. This is the church that has so many bizarre practices and habits. And one of the ones they have here is that they're just dividing. And what are they dividing over? They're dividing over which leader they're going to follow the most. Things have changed a lot in the church, haven't they, over the centuries? Because I know nobody here in D.C. says, oh, I go to his church, or I go to her church. Atlanta, where I spent 17 years, has more mega churches per capita than any other metropolitan city on planet Earth. And most of the time, you don't hear the name of the church. You hear the name of the pastor. I go to Andy Stanley's church. Well, I didn't realize it was his church. I realize he's a servant there, but I didn't realize he's, or I go to Louis' church, or I go, and the list goes on and on. We will naturally divide even over leaders. And here's what Paul says You guys are spiritual infants. That's what children do. Children argue and divide themselves over silly things like that. Several years ago, I was in Walmart, and this is Lexington, North Carolina. Lexington has a Walmart, and they have a Belk. And so the Belk is, that's where all the really good stuff you buy clothing was. And so I'm in the Walmart. I walk out of the Walmart. I go over to Belk, and I park in Belk because I have to go get a belt from Belk. And while I'm in there, I see this story unfold that was just magnificent. It's two boys, clearly they're brothers, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of six and four. And they saw how to get into a disagreement. I don't even know what the disagreement was over, but I'm watching this unfold, and they begin to run around the little counter over there where, like, makeup is and all that stuff. That you and so they begin running around, chasing each other, and then they get into a fist fight. And here's my I grew up with two brothers and nine guy cousins, and so I'm watching this with utter delight. I'm going, this is so fantastic. Ooh, good one. Good hit. That was good. 
Watch it. And so these two ladies then run over to where it is. And, and the one lady, break them up. We don't fight. We don't do that. I'm, I'm thinking, of course, no, we don't do that, boys. We don't do those things. And one of the ladies looks at the other, and this is what she says. You know what that is? That's a parent problem. Now, if you've been a parent for more than five minutes, you know that's not a parent problem. That's just kids. It's just boys being boys. But, but what she thought was she looked in and she saw these kids that were fighting and she made an immediate, immediate judgment about the parent. Do you know what those who do on the outside of the church? They look in at the church and they see the church fighting over silly, frivolous things. I'm not talking about big, important things. Jesus is the only means of salvation. He's the only way we can be made right with God. The Bible is the inspired word of God. These are things that are worth fighting over. Baptism? Other aspects of, of faith? Like when is Jesus returning? And we create new denominations based on some of these things? The outside world looks in and says, I'll tell you what that is. That's a parent problem. See, what Paul is after here is not, he's not saying, look, let's just all get along and let's join hands and sing Kumbaya and let's do a Coke commercial. It'd be great. Paul is saying there's a much bigger issue at hand. The bigger issue is, is that the world is not seeing the reality of who God is. And so don't divide over who you follow. Man, don't, don't be a Duke follower. Follow Duke as Duke follows Jesus. Don't be an Irwin Entz follower. Follow Irwin as Irwin follows Jesus. But you follow Jesus. Everything else will take care of itself. One last little illustration on this. You know, in a church like this, it's just so refreshing for me where you look out and you see this is what the kingdom of God looks like. It's so wonderful. There's a danger that we all can get into. And the danger is that we get into this thing of how are we going to be unified with one another? How are we going to be? And, and we have this attempt to be unified by just using ourselves as the unifying agent or quality. In other words, we, we try to just come together. And what the scriptures actually call us to is there's got to be some reason, and better yet, there's got to be a person in which we're unifying around. So we can do our best to do, do all that we can to come together and to be unified, and it will never work. It will never work. We have to be unified around. Do you remember the old illustration of, of pianos that are out of tune? You can have 100 pianos that are out of tune. And if you try to tune those pianos to one another, you're just going to have 100 pianos that are still out of tune. But if you take a tuning fork and tune each piano to that one tuning fork, now they are in harmony with one another. Now they're unified. Jesus is the ultimate tuning fork. So you major on him. Paul says, Grow up. Quit fighting. Quit following this dude. He has a role. He has a role. God is the one who is using them all. That's what verses 1 through 4 say. Look at verses 5 through 15. I think he gives us in here more about how the church is supposed to function. He gives two really illustrations. The church is like a plant which needs watering. And it's like a church. The church is like a building that needs builders. The church is in constant need of growing. I was a landscaper for several years in Alabama. You can do that almost year-round. And so in the really, really cold months, which happened for those two weeks out of the year, you get a chance to go, and I would paint. But I was able to do landscaping throughout the year. 
And I learned several things um, uh, in there. One of the things that I learned was that plants um, take a tremendous amount of work. And the weeding process is constant. If you don't have weeds that are coming up from the ground, then you don't have healthy soil. There's always going to be the process of needing to get weeds out and going, and the gardeners have to do that. I've never seen a plant weed itself. It always takes somebody else to come in and to do the work. And so God is going to send various people along. He's going to say, hey, you got some weeds in your life. And we do that lovingly. We do that respectfully. And we do that with our eyes wide open, not ignoring that huge plank that's in our eye, trying to get the speck out of the other ones. We don't do it like that. We, we say, I, I, I'm with you. We need help. But we listen to others. We see what those are. But then there's also the pruning that takes place. This is what I learned. Every time you cut little azaleas, which is what I love to see bloom uh, in the springtime, every time you cut one of those azaleas, what happens is it grows back stronger and actually could be three little branches that will come off from there. And it gets more fruitful in the process. It gets bigger and broader when it gets pruned. If you don't prune, what actually ends up happening is things kind of grow out long and they lose a lot of their fruitfulness and over time they actually just die. God is in the constant process of pruning you. And I wish I could tell you that wouldn't be painful. I wish I could tell you that it is such a joy. It's always fun. Oh, Lord, yes, more. Please, thank you. I'm, I'm loving the suffering. This is great. It is going to be hard, um, but God does it because it's the most loving thing he could possibly do for his church. Now, why? Because it's not really about you. Never has been never will be. It's about this church growing up. And it's about this church reflecting the reality of who God is. He has taken this church and he's put her on display as his bride. And he said, I want the whole world to look in. And then the world can make some judgments about me based on what they see. And what the world has never needed to see is a perfect church. What the world has desperate needed to see is a church that says, God, I need help. So, Lord, we welcome you pruning. We welcome you pulling out the weeds. We, we, we ask you to do more because I didn't, I didn't just need Jesus the first time that I came to faith. I need Jesus today to save me from me. That's what the world needs to see is a whole bunch of people living like little Christs, failing, falling way short of what it is that he does, but then saying, oh, by the way, World, this is why I need Jesus. And this is what I invite you to look and to, and to see. So we need plants that need watering. We also need builders that are in the building process. Just as there is one block placed on the other. My grandfather, my father's father was a block mason. My dad worked with him from the time he was in first grade. My grandfather never got past the sixth grade. His father never got past the third grade. I'll tell you what these men could do. They could flat out build a building. They could take some blocks and place them one upon the other. My father would tell me life lessons after life lessons that he learned from a highly uneducated man. And one of the things that my father uh, shared with me is that he learned from the very earliest days with his father is, if you don't get the first stone right, everything else falls apart. And so time, effort, energy, more time is spent on the foundational piece of stone that's put together, and then everything else lines up accordingly. And what Paul tells us in other passages is this. Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. So what he's trying to get across to us is this central message. Keep coming back to Jesus. 
Don't get discouraged when you look at your church and you say, whew, are we ever going to grow? You keep coming back to Jesus. And trust the fact that he said this, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Remember, the gates are what kept people in the kingdom or out of that particular kingdom. And Jesus gives an illustration. He says that the church is actually going to be an offensive battering ram going on the love offensive to go meet a world. And that hell itself is going to try to keep us out. And the church is going to say, no, we're going. And the power of God. Because this message is much more important than me. And so we're going to go and love people and serve people and live like Jesus. And Jesus will not be just simply the model by which for us to go by. He's actually the power himself to enable us to do this. And Jesus tells us, by the way, you're going to do this and hell can't stop you. So go, live, enjoy, risk, step out. I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Last thing I want us to see in here just in verses 16 through 23 is the nature of the true church. He talks about the church as being the temple of God, us collectively. We collectively are the temple of God, the residing place of God. The scriptures tell us that God inhabits the praises of his people even on a Sunday morning as we gather and we celebrate the greatness of God in a magnificent way from a little boy from Alabama who gets to enjoy it. We do that God is present in here and he's present in your neighborhoods uh, when you move out. And God says, don't destroy the temple. Don't come after the temple. Don't, don't pile on to the temple. He says, love her, serve her, cherish her, pray for her, believe in the God of her. And when you get discouraged, trust me, so we're the temple. Then he says that God's wisdom is superior to the world's wisdom. This is where I want to close. We all are on a journey. And today, if you would consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus, you have the exact same calling as every other follower of Jesus has. And that is we are called to become less in order that he might become more. And it's less of me that is living out this life and it's more of Jesus in me that is living. And some days I look at my particular life and I say, I think the Lord's doing a really good work. And I, the way that I responded to my wife and kids right then was actually decent. And other days I look and I say, are you at work at all in me? Have you done anything? I feel like I've regressed. But we're all on a journey and that journey is to become less so that he might become more. You know, the secular world sees this. Jack Welch, in his book entitled Winning, says it this way, and it's in your bulletin. Before you are a leader, success is all about growing yourself. But when you become a leader, success is all about growing others. Those in the world understand this principle. It's, it's something that is universally seen. However, it is practiced, in my experience, only on a consistent basis by those who would be surrendered, those who would submit their lives over to the Lordship of Christ. Let me say it this way. I, I hope I don't offend anyone here. I, I promise you I'm so disconnected from politics in an unhealthy manner. But I'm here in Washington, D.C., and I know we have public servants. And it has been my consistent experience. I don't care what you are, a Republican, a Democrat, a Whig, a Toey. I don't care who you are, whatever your party affiliation is. It seems to me that the overwhelming vast majority of them are not all about growing others. Now, I don't know them, and that is a statement coming from someone from a distance, and so please forgive me 
if that sounds I'm condescending because I could say the same thing about me. I could say the same thing about pastors. Many of us are not about serving the people. We're all about serving ourselves. And we want to grow congregations, not so that people will be connected to Jesus, not so that they'll serve others and bring hope to a, a, a lost world. We do it because we have egos that need to be fed. Before you become leader, it's all about growing yourself. Jack Welch says, after you become leader, though, it's all about growing others. And this is the paradox in which Paul says here, he tells us, that we ought to become fools for the world. Now, what does he mean? Have you actually ever tried to give someone the message of the Bible who would consider themselves not to be followers of Christ? It is a great joy and privilege of mine. I do it on a consistent basis. I love conversations and interactions with folks that I call skeptics, and I use that in an endearing term. I mean that. Skepticism is healthy. Cynicism is not. But skepticism is good. And so talking with folks that are outside the faith, I get this question regularly. Okay, David, so you're telling me that Jesus is the only way that I can be made right with God. And if you stop for a moment and you try to explain the whole story, here's how it would go. I do. I believe that before there was anything ever in existence, there was always this thing called God. And God decided that he would create everything just by speaking it into being. And so he said, let there be, and a whole bunch of stuff began. And he created a garden. And inside of that garden, there was all these trees, and God said, you can have your way with all this, but there's one particular tree. Don't hang out with that, because this one has some fruit. And if you eat of that fruit, well, then your eyes are going to be open, and then you're going to see good and bad and all that for him. And so then there was a snake who at that point had legs, and he could talk. And he made his way over to the first people on the earth, Adam and Eve, the only people on planet earth who were naked and not ashamed. They didn't even recognize the fact they had no clothes on. And the snake began to talk to him and said, by the way, God told you that uh, you shouldn't do this. Um, it's not true. He's just it's going to be a little bit jealous because you're going to be really cool. And so then uh, the woman then took the fruit and she ate some. And, uh, and then their eyes were opened. Boom. Only people on planet Earth. Whoa, goodness gracious, you're naked. Go, let's go. Fig leaves cover themselves. God says that's not good enough. Kills an animal, covers them with animal skin, and gives them a promise. And the promise says, one day the seed of this serpent is going to meet the seed of this woman. And the seed of the woman is going to win. Okay, Dave, I'm tracking with you. <laughs> so far. And so then a whole bunch of these people get grown up. And, and by the way, God flooded the earth. And it's one person. He wanted to do this to point to the one person who's going to save all this. And, and so then he gets this guy named Abraham who's an idol-worshiping pagan. And he says, you're going to bless the whole world. It's going to be a, like descendants. You can't even count them. And, uh, but yeah, that's true. God did start that in a unique way. There was a woman that was about 100 years old that gave birth. And then the people got enslaved and God brought them out by doing all kinds of really weird things like turning water into blood and then frogs started coming down from the sky and, and yeah, and that's what happened. All right. And so there's these promises that are made so animals have to be sacrificed and it doesn't really take away sin. It sort of points to the fact that somebody's going to take away sin. But then this guy does come and by the way, he was born from a woman who had never physically been with any other man, but he was born. And he's God. <laughs> and so he's 100% God. And he's 100% man. And, you know, just kind of got to embrace that. And so he died. And he died after having not one single thought, motive, deed, action that was ever wrong. 
And because he died, then God poured out all of his wrath upon him while he was on a cross. He was put on that cross by people who were jealous and who wanted to have their own system. But he actually got there because he volunteered for the position. Because he looked down at people in humanity and said, it's not good enough that they're going to spend eternity separated from me, so I'm going to go. And while they're still sinners, I'll die for them. And he was dead on Friday. And Saturday he was dead. But Sunday he came back from the dead through his own power. God raised him up from the dead. And now anybody who places all of their faith and hope and trust in him alone can now be made right with God. And it's just as if I never sinned. Oh, I still sin. But when God looks at me, he sees the perfection of this guy, his son who came to the earth. Have you ever tried to explain that to someone? Of course it sounds ridiculous. And Paul says, it's going to be the eyes of the people that are opened because the Holy Spirit is going to invade their hearts. So, how do we become fools? By giving ourselves over to this simple message. Believing that this message will actually change people from the inside. Not just sort of renovate them from the outside so that they talk better and sound better and do cooler things. They get changed internally with different desires and motives and so much so that they say, I now want to live for your glory that you may be made great, that people would be truly satisfied in who you are, content in their relationship with you, that it changes this right here. So, 1904, William Borden graduates from high school, heir to tremendous amount of money, Borden Milk. Graduates high school with a gift from his parents, and that is to be able to go uh, and to travel over in uh, Europe and uh, in the Middle East even. And he travels and he develops a heart for the people that are there. He comes back and he says, I want to give my life towards missions. And he decides he's not going to rely upon all of the riches and wealth that he had, which was rightfully his nothing wrong with wealth, nothing wrong with riches. He said, I'm not going to rely on that. I'm actually going to just trust God as he takes me. And so he wrote a little note in his journal and it said, no reserves. Didn't want to rely upon that, which was God had actually provided for his family. While training to be a missionary after finishing from Yale and going on to Princeton, while training, he, interact, he uh, undergoes a great deal of difficulty. And his body contracts an illness. And thinking back upon all that was left behind and that which he could go back to now, he wrote again, underneath no reserves, he wrote another line and it says, no retreats. Just a few weeks before his death in one of his final journal entries, thinking and knowing that his death was impending, it was coming, he was about to meet the very Savior that he had fallen so desperately in love with and wanted others to see and fall in love with, he wrote one last little line. And that last little line was, no regrets. A man would turn his back on fame and fortune and wealth, turn his back on a thriving business, and he would give his life away. Never even get to get to the mission field because he wanted to make sure that people who had never heard about this Jesus would have the opportunity and in his mind, was it worth it? Many in the outside world would say, you fool. And he would say, no reserves, no retreats, oh, and no regrets.
Thank you for letting me be here. Thank you for letting me be a part of an ordination service where two men are about to now stand up and say, for the rest of my life, I want to make it about others. And I want to stoop to serve because that's what Jesus did. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness, your grace, your mercy towards us. Father, thank you that uh, you have chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. So, Father, I ask that today you would allow us to become fools, the kind that you're talking about. Lord, we don't want to be idiots. We don't want to be childish. We want to approach you with a childlike faith, and we want to be fools for Jesus. I pray that you would bless this church. Father, I pray you would prosper them. Would you pour out your spirit upon them? Would you grow them? Would you fill them over and over again with your spirit? And I pray that this neighborhood, this section of Washington, D.C., would be blessed tremendously because this church has been here. So guide and lead. Raise up more leaders. We pray all of this, not because we've been particularly good. We pray this only because Jesus has been perfect on our behalf. So it's in his name that we pray it all. Amen. Let's all stand together. I want to invite the parents to go ahead and and receive your kids uh, in the foyer if they are uh, preschool age and above. We'll leave the babies and toddlers uh, in their room so the kids can join us. Uh, The rest of us, let's sing together and let's glorify the name of the Lord. Who's ready to glorify the name of the Lord? Stand in his presence and his glory. Give him honor. Give him dominion. Come near to us, Lord. Oh, uh-huh. 